This is Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. If you're a new listener, this is where we talk about what's happening in the economy, in the markets, and what's happening politically, and how it's likely going to affect you and your money. And if you've not yet gotten our May special report titled, The Five Threats to Your Retirement and How to Potentially Avoid Them, I would encourage you to request the report by going to requestyourreportnow.com. I'd be very glad to send you a complimentary copy of our May report. And again, the website is requestyourreportnow.com. You know, this program is really dedicated to providing information, providing resources to savers and investors. And when one looks at the current policies, the current monetary policies, which in a nutshell is money printing, policies that are often intended to help people end up hurting them. In other words, these policies sometimes have unintended consequences. And that's what I want to talk about in this segment, because those on the lower end of the income spectrum and savers and investors are really kind of taking it on the chin, if you will, when it comes to the unintended consequences of these policies. Now, I'm a bit of a history buff uh, because one can study history, take a look when, historically speaking, facts and circumstances look a lot like they do today, and you can develop a pretty good idea as to where things are likely headed in the future. Your history teacher was right. Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Now, the current economic policies, and I'm focusing here on money printing, in my view, will likely result in the realization of Thomas Jefferson's warning to us well over 200 years ago. Now, if you are a new listener, Mr. Jefferson warned us that we should not allow private bankers to control the issue of our currency. Now, since 1913, when the Federal Reserve Act was passed, private bankers have been in charge of U.S. monetary policy. The Federal Reserve, which makes all the money decisions in the United States, is not a government agency. It is a private group of bankers. I often ask if you believe that that private group of bankers has your best interests over their own. Well, Jefferson said, if you do this and if you make this mistake, in his view, he said, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will will grow up around us will deprive the people of all property until our children wake up homeless on the very continent our fathers conquered. Now, I started to convey the teachings of Mr. Jefferson regarding a central bank uh, in the new retirement rules class that I taught at a local university back in 2011. That was the first year that I taught the class. At that time, I suggested that depending on what the Federal Reserve, depending on what this private group of bankers decided to do moving ahead, we had two potential economic outcomes. Now, keep in mind, this was 10 years ago. Given that we had just gone through the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, 
And given that private sector debt levels were very high, similar to debt levels that existed at the onset of the Great Depression, I suggested that we would have deflation like we saw in the 1930s during the Great Depression, or we would have inflation followed by deflation, as Mr. Jefferson suggested, should the Fed decide to create money out of thin air. Now, it is clear to me at this point that we are on the latter path. We are on the path that Mr. Jefferson warned us about. And sadly, savers and investors are paying the price. And those in the lower income brackets are also paying the price because we are now seeing signs of inflation everywhere. Warren Buffett addressing... Berkshire Hathaway shareholders virtually, I understand he spoke for about six six hours, said this, and I'm quoting. Mr. Buffett said, quote, we are seeing very substantial inflation. We are raising prices. People are raising prices to us, and it's being accepted. Now, that statement and reality, for those of you that have been to the grocery store or the lumber company, flies in the face of what Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell recently said. He insisted that inflation is transitory. Now, to think that the Fed has expanded the money supply by ridiculous amounts, and we will only have short-lived or temporary or transitory inflation, is simply ludicrous. Now, Bank of America may have gotten it right this past week. Bank of America suggested that the U.S. will experience a transitory hyperinflation. They use the H word, not just inflation, but a hyperinflation. Now that statement, in my view, is a bit more accurate because history teaches us that hyperinflations typically don't last very long. Hyperinflations are typically temporary, and they often last only until faith in the currency is lost, at which point a reset has to occur. Now, I talked about this on my Headline Roundup webinar that we do live every Monday at noon Eastern time. If you'd like to go back and take a look at the 10 or so hyperinflations that we talked about on that webinar and see how long they lasted... I would encourage you to go get the RLA app. You can go to the App Store on your smartphone, search under your RLA, that's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, and you can get the app and you can go back and watch all the headline roundup um, webinar replays. So just this past week, there have been a number of news sources, I would add reliable news sources that have reported on the ever-increasing levels of inflation that are now hitting the economy. I would also argue this is a result, a direct result, of massive money creation. And now, the politicians in Washington are talking about an infrastructure package. Another $4 trillion, granted, that would probably be uh, spending that occurred over a longer time frame, like, say, 10 years or so. However, it can only be funded by more money creation. 
Now, if you look back at the stimulus package that was passed earlier this year, that $1.9 trillion spending package, that was designed really to help people who have been harmed financially over the past year. Now, that sounds well-intentioned, that sounds benevolent, that sounds perhaps even needed. However, the cold reality is that there was no money to fund that $1.9 trillion stimulus package. That money had to be created. And whenever massive money creation occurs, history teaches us that inflation soon follows. And we're seeing that now, as I'll talk about more in the fourth segment of today's program. The inflation that's created by money creation remains long after the stimulus checks have been mailed, cashed, and spent. As I talked about on my program last week with Dr. Bob McHugh, the economy is contracting. And the economy is contracting when measured by dollars that are being devalued. So we have a contracting economy. We have prices that are rising, which is the definition of stagflation. Now, that, of course, is one of the five threats to your retirement that we talk about in this month's special report. We also give you some strategies to consider to potentially protect yourself from stagflation. If you've not yet requested the May special report, you can get it by going to requestyourreportnow.com. The website, again, is requestyourreportnow.com. And if you just let me know where you'd like that report to be mailed, uh, we will get that out to you at no cost and no obligation whatsoever. Now, for a long time, I've been talking about the idea of dividing your assets up into two buckets. Now, this runs contrary to what I would call Wall Street only advice. See, typically when someone has an IRA or someone has a 401k, they invest in some mix of stocks and bonds, weighting their portfolio more toward bonds the older they are. Now, in many environments, that can be a really good strategy. However, in an environment where stocks are more overvalued by a wide margin than at any time in history, in an environment where interest rates have been kept artificially low, I believe, and as our May report talks about, that that particular traditional planning strategy will set people up for failure. So again, to get the May report and learn of some strategies you might consider, go to requestyourreportnow.com, and I'll be very glad to get that report out to you. Also, if you're just joining us, our website, which contains a number of free resources, uh, is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can go nose around the website, and there's a lot of free resources there I would encourage you to check out as well. I will be back after these words with my special guest this week, the publisher of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report, Mr. Simon Popple. I caught up with Simon this past week from his offices in London, and I know you're going to enjoy the conversation I had with Simon, as well as getting his forecast for certain bullish investment segments of the market. I'll be back after these words.
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Simon Popple. Uh, Simon is the publisher of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report. You can learn more about his work at brookvillecapital.com. The website, again, is brookvillecapital.com. And, Simon, welcome back to the program. Great to be here. So, Simon, let's start by talking a little bit about, uh, you wrote about four, four to five months ago, and at that time we talked about um, central bank policies, and it seems like, uh, you know, in light of or in the face of what seems to be emerging inflation, central banks still have their pedal to the metal. They're still creating money. They've got interest rates near zero. Um, what's your take? Well, I mean, uh, with all the money being printed, um, I like to invest in tangible things that you can't print, which is very much pointing me in the direction of commodities at the moment, uh, because you know you can't print them. And uh, I think that you know if we do get inflation, um, and a lot of people seem to think that that is going to happen, then uh, I mean you're already seeing commodity prices um, head north. You know, lumber is quite a good example. But um, if we really get inflation, then I think commodity prices could uh, could go up. So I see them both as a um, you know potentially good investment, and also um, they may provide some sort of hedge against inflation. So when we talk about commodities, Simon, let's drill down to a very basic level here, because certainly I think most people, at least here in the United States, um, when when they invest or they save money, they put money in an IRA or 401k, and the traditional investments are stocks or stock funds and bonds and bond funds. Many people don't invest in commodities, as we discussed before we started recording our, our interview here. So for those maybe who are uninitiated to the whole idea of investing in commodities, just explain first, you know, what are commodities? You give us some examples maybe, and then we'll get into some different ways to do this. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, examples are anything like gold, silver, uranium, cobalt, nickel, lithium, uh, water, um, basically anything that's tangible. Um, quite often, uh, or more often than not, they're used in actually making things as well. Um, so they are you know, very important for our society. Um, you know, rare earths are quite a good example where I think 97% of rare earths come from China. So I like the idea of having some exposure to rare earths that are outside China. Um, and, you know, a lot of uranium comes from, from, from the east. So I like having exposure to uranium, you know, in the west, in the US and Canada and places like that. So commodities are really um, physical items that are used to to make things. So if if you look at commodities, Simon, I mean, I guess you could go out in the case of gold and, and silver, certainly, um, you know, I've been talking about for a very long time that it's, it's good to have some of your portfolio in physical gold and silver. Um, take take some of the, the, the maybe the, the lesser known or, or lesser invested in commodities. Um, how can someone go about investing in those? Do they buy the physical silver, like like copper's been going crazy lately, or are there other ways that that you like to to to, to make that investment? Well, with gold and silver, I I do like to have um, some uh, physical uh, gold and silver. But um, what I really like about the sector is you can actually invest in the equities of of companies that mine 
gold, silver, and for that matter, other commodities as well. So by investing in those companies, it gives you great exposure to whatever they're mining. So if the price of, uh, let's say, nickel goes through the roof, then you tend to find that nickel companies do very well because the nickel that they're mining is worth a lot more than it used to be. So you know that's a great way you can get exposure to a broad range of uh, commodities. And as these are listed companies as well, um, you know they tend to be very liquid. So you know, if you want to get your money out quickly, you can. And by having a broad range of, uh, of exposures to different commodities, it means that um, invariably, you know, if, if if one's gone up, um, and let's say the other one's gone down, then you know you, you can sell the one that's gone up. You're not forced to um, uh, to sell everything, you know, just because you need the money. Um, and uh, you know, I, I like this diversification that it that it provides investors. So, Simon, when you look at the overall stock market, certainly uh, there's there was a lot of attention paid to the comments that Warren Buffett made a couple of weeks ago when he addressed. Uh, the Berkshire Hathaway conference, uh, stating that you know we're seeing inflation, and he also stated that stocks are overvalued. And when you look at this, the, the Buffett indicator, which is an often used measure of the value of stocks, the overall broad stock market is certainly more overvalued, arguably, than at any point in history. If we see a market decline, and I guess I'd like your opinion on the probability of that, to what extent will will commodity-related stocks maybe buck that declining trend, in your view? Well, an index I would I would suggest your listeners look at is the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, um, and now that obviously looks at a basket of, of commodities, but you'll see that's actually um, pretty low um, and historically, um, you know, much lower than it has been. Um, so I think that what you tend to find if there's a market crash is that um, you know people panic; it's a crash, and therefore. Quite often, what will happen is all stocks will will go down because people are basically liquidating and panic selling. Um, but commodity stocks, because commodity prices are rising, um, invariably it's a very short uh, downtrend, um, and uh, you know they can go up pretty quickly. And uh, I know part of you is probably thinking, well, why don't I wait for a crash and I'll buy them then? But um, uh, every time is different, and it may be that, that people are um, buying into them already and are prepared to, you know, to live through any dip because they're confident the prices will will rebound. So there may not be an opportunity to, to get in at a later date, which is why, um, you know, I like to uh, to have at least some money on the table at the moment. So, Simon, as far as the overall broad market, are you in agreement that we're, we're overdue for a correction here? Yeah, I, I, I think that we are. Um, with all the money printing uh, going into the market, it's no surprise to me that the market is is doing is doing pretty well. But um, you know, at some stage, the uh, uh, the punch bowl will have to get taken away. You can't just keep printing money forever. And I think when that happens, um, you're going to see a significant market correction and people really thinking about you know what stocks are in and why they're in them and uh, i think in many cases that will lead people towards buying commodities so just to expand on a on a statement you made there simon uh, you know we i think we can all agree that you can't print money forever in fact uh, 
the late economist Herbert Stein made a statement along those lines saying if something cannot continue forever, it will stop, which is simple but profound. Um, how do you see this this money creation coming to an end? It seems like the, you know, the, the central banks around the world are just uh, hell-bent on printing money until confidence is lost in the currency. Is, is, is that the end game here in your view? Yeah, I, I think ultimately it's to do with confidence. And, um, uh, but you know, confidence can be wafer thin. And you know, one day people can be confident, the other day they may lose confidence. And I think that what you'll probably find is that uh, if the money printing does continue, um, then people... Uh, you know, we're already having rushes of people into commodities and and property simply because I think that you know they're hard assets and they're real assets. And um, I think that you know at some point, uh, you know, prices could go a bit crazy and people, um, you know, start to lose confidence in uh, in the money. I mean, you're actually you know you're already seeing prices of, of digital currencies like Bitcoin go through the roof. And um, you know, I, I think central banks. We'll tolerate that for a while, but at some, you know, at some point they'll go, well, hang on, we want to control the money supply. And um, therefore, um, you know, we want to be involved in digital currencies. Um, what that means for the existing ones, I really don't know. But um, uh, I, I think the central banks will want to join the, the digital party at some point. And it'll be interesting to see what happens to other currencies when, when that happens. Yeah, and you know the uh, the Federal Reserve here, uh, Jerome Powell, the the chair of the Fed here in the in the United States, has said that a digital dollar is a high priority. And and Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, has made similar comments. Um, do you see the the central banks being able to uh, to put together and implement a digital currency before confidence is ultimately lost in in existing fiat currencies? I've heard different opinions on that. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think they will be. Uh, I think they'll be able to do that. But but then the question is, how does a digital currency differ from the other currency? And I think that's that's the sort of million dollar question. And um, you know, debt is debt. It doesn't matter if it's digital or or, or you know fiat. And um, I think that's what they've got to overcome. And um, I honestly don't know how they're going to do that, but I'm sure they'll find a way to do that. But I think when when the proposal is put put on the table. Um, for whatever the, you know, they view the solution to be, I think a lot of people will want to, um, you know, to have some physical assets as well. Well, I'm chatting today with Mr. Simon Popple. He is the publisher of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report. Uh, you can learn more at brookvillecapital.com. And uh, Simon, we've got just over a minute left in this segment, so it's just enough time for you to explain to the listeners um, what you what what the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report is all about. Thank you very much. What it is, it's a weekly report that provides my thoughts on the commodity market um, and uh, you know, where you could perhaps be investing some of your money. Um, we've had some tremendous successes. Chalice is uh, one that I, I, I can mention because um, I told people about it when the uh, share price was 15 and a half cents. Uh, it's now over $7.50. Um, we've got uh, several others that have done very well as, as well. And um, uh, yes, I mean, it's, it's really for people who want a diversified portfolio, want to make some money, and um, yeah, it's a lot of fun as well. So, um, you know, whether you do it through me or, or through any route, uh, I'd strongly suggest, uh, you know, it's a market you take a look at. 
Well, I'm chatting today again with Mr. Simon Popple. Uh, his publication is the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report. I'll continue my conversation with Simon when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and this is RLA Radio. I am chatting today with Mr. Simon Popple. Uh, Simon is the publisher of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report. I would encourage you to check out his work at brookvillecapital.com. And Simon, you know, in the last segment, we talked about the fact that central bankers around the world are on this money creation binge, and it's driven certainly the, the, the broad stock market much higher. Uh, but the same thing has happened um, in real estate. Uh, this looks a lot like 2006 to me uh, as far as real estate goes with uh, uh, maybe even a more extreme price valuation here. What's your opinion? Well, I used to be a director of one of the world's largest uh, private uh, property companies, so I do know a little bit about property. And um, one of the things that scares me about property as an asset class, especially there's two things, but the, the main thing is I think it's driven more by affordability than anything else. And what I mean by that is that every time you get a cut in interest rates, it means that people can afford to spend more on uh, uh, property or real estate. And so, uh, you know, if you're living with your parents or wherever you're living, um, if there's a cut in interest rates, your purchasing power automatically goes up. And because we've seen um, rates decline significantly over the last 10, 20 years, it's meant that affordability has gone up dramatically. Now, when someone uses that affordability, i.e. they've got more money to buy a house, um, then what, what tends to happen is the value of that property will go up because all properties in the neighborhood because they can say, well, the property next door went for this price and therefore us paying a similar price is not unreasonable, is you end up with, with house prices going up. And I think that's, um, you know, that works while affordability is going up. But if affordability starts going into reverse, then quite often what you'll find is house prices start going into reverse. And mortgage companies tend to be quite conservative. So what what will probably happen is what they'll do is they'll look at um, not only you know, the market as it is today, but they'll probably look at the market as it could be tomorrow. And therefore, what you could find is that um, uh, it, it becomes more difficult to get a loan uh, for properties. And um, what we found uh, in the crash of 2008, it was largely people trying to refinance during that period that were particularly hard hit. Because if you're trying to refinance and you can't get uh, the debt that, that you need, uh, especially if you've got loan-to-value covenants or you need to put a certain amount of equity into a property in order to get the kind of loan that you need, um, then you know it can really hurt you and, and it could have a dramatic impact on, on prices. So, Simon, when you, when, you, when you draw the comparison of the, the crash of 2008 and then let's just say just prior to the crash of 2008 and where we are today, uh, what, what, how, how similar are those situations in your view? I think there's, there's quite a lot of similarity, to be honest. Um, you know, there's certainly um, a nervousness in the market. And um, 
you know, I think the pandemic has, has you know, no one, no one was expecting the pandemic to happen, and it really has uh, hit the market quite hard. And I think one of the things that is particularly um, uh, uncomfortable for for investors is that um, you know, commercial real estate. Um, you know, personally, I viewed it as as pretty bomb proof, to be honest. But because of uh, the pandemic, um, you know, we're not sure uh, the, what the demand is going to be for offices and uh, industrial and and retail in the future. And you've got to remember that a property is worth what the cash flow is. Uh, you know that that's really what it's based on. Uh, you know what 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 the rental payments are. And um, if people can't afford to pay the rent or they don't want to pay the rent, then that has a, a direct impact on the value of the property. So um, I think you know you, you you could do well out of this if you if you've got properties located in the right areas where there's still massive demand. But um, you know if you've got a portfolio of properties in areas where there isn't demand, um, then um, you know I think it's going to be a lot more challenging than uh, you know would like it to be. Well, and you know, I, I I read a piece this past week um, and talked to some clients about it this past week that uh, two of the largest uh, property management companies in the United States have raised rents here in the month of April by about 11%. Um, and they seem to be able to raise rents and they seem to be getting away with it. But uh, the other piece of this is that uh, we've got uh, expanded unemployment benefits. We've got a lot of stimulus money floating around out there. And, uh, you know, we're going to get through this summer with the extended or expanded unemployment benefits. But then uh, at this point, anyway, it seems that all that will be scaled back. So to what extent do you think that scale back in government stimulus money will negatively impact the real estate market? Well, I think a, lo- a, lo- a lot of um, sort of the impact will, will, will depend on where that money is coming from, because if it's coming from um, if the rent is being paid by stimulus checks, which are going to be stopped, then um, you know landlords won't be aware there's an issue. They don't really care where the money comes from. All they care is that the rent is paid. Um, but if that money stops, um, or here in the UK we've got a furlough scheme, but if, if that stops and people start getting laid off, then um, they, they won't have the ability, again, I'm touching on this affordability, to, to pay that rent. So um, yes, you you know you can put rents up to a point, but if they're being paid essentially by the government through um, some sort of welfare scheme, and that scheme stops, then uh, you know that rent will stop as well. So Simon, somebody listening to this that maybe says, okay, I think real estate. I'm in real estate. Real estate is uh, probably overvalued, but real estate's also a tangible asset. Let's circle back to the commodity conversation we had in the last segment, uh, because commodities are also tangible assets, which uh, is really how we started this conversation. What are some of your favorite commodities at this point? Are there any that are that are undervalued at this point? Uh, it's very difficult to sort of know if something's undervalued or overvalued, but I, I like to have uh, diversity. You know, uh, I still like property, but I've got a huge amount of money tied up in my own house. And so um, for me, that's enough exposure to the market. But at the moment, commodity wise, you know, I like gold and silver. Um, but then, you know, a bit of diversity. So a bit of uranium, lithium, if you think the electric um, vehicle market's going to take off, you know, you've got nickel, cobalt. So having a broad range of commodities, I think, um, you know, 
could be very useful for investors because it means that they've got a more diverse portfolio. So, you know, I'm not advocating sell all your property. All I'm saying is you should have a more diverse portfolio. And um, and then if, if one market does head north or south, then, you know, you, you don't have all your eggs in one basket. And, um, you know, you, you can sell something if you need the money. And if you don't need the money, then you can look at your portfolio and, um, you know, decide what you want to do. I think one of the main problems that people have is that they they only think about their portfolio twice, once when they buy and once when they sell, and they don't think about it in the intervening period. And I think that's quite a fundamental mistake, especially in these markets. You know, you do need to think about your portfolio on a on a regular basis, and um, I think particularly selling, uh, you need to be conscious of: um, Are you selling because it's a wise investment decision, or are you selling because you're going to need the money? Terrific point. You know, Simon, I guess uh, you you'd mentioned gold and silver uh, as part of a portfolio, and I'd like your perspective. You know, you, we mentioned cryptocurrencies. Those uh, Many of them have been going through the roof. Even cryptos that were started as a joke seem to be <laughs> gaining in popularity. <laughs> and yet, at the same time, we've got gold and silver whose prices are, are rebounding here recently, but certainly not to the extent of cryptos. W- why do you think that is? Well, I, I, it's, it's a very difficult question to, to answer. And to be honest, uh, you know, I don't know, and I don't think anyone else really knows. But I think that um, you know, if, if you got into cryptos at the start, you've done phenomenally well, and you know, well done you. But I think at these levels, um, buying into Bitcoin, I think it's 50-something thousand dollars for a Bitcoin, um, then you know, for that to double, you know, Bitcoin has to be over $100,000. Um, and that's a digital currency. Um, now, I don't understand that market. Now, if people do and they feel confident in it, then great. But I mean, I think even Elon Musk said, look, you know, digital, digital currencies are speculative. So, um, you know, I, I think people do need to be very careful. And I, I feel they've detracted from gold and silver because I think speculators have probably put their money into um, digital currencies rather than gold and silver. But um, at the end of the day, you know, I like commodities because they're tangible you can touch them and um if uh if anything did ever happen to to cryptocurrencies then um uh you know buying at this level for me wouldn't make sense you know if, if i was going to be in this market i wish i got in you know five ten years ago so do you have simon uh an ultimate price target for Gold and silver, that's always kind of a dicey question because we don't know exactly what <laughs> what Fed policy is going to be moving ahead. But, I mean, are you envisioning a big move here for the, the, the more traditional precious metals? I, I think there could well be. I mean, as you say, it's a dicey area sort of trying to pick a, pick a price target because that depends. There's so many moving parts. But, um, you know, gold and silver have been around for thousands of years. They've got, they've got form. They've got a track record. And so for me... Uh, in these uncertain times, uh, when you know, no one really knows what's going to happen next, I think having at least some of your portfolio in an asset that's been around for thousands of years rather than a few years um, seems to make sense to me. Well, my guest today has been Mr. Simon Popple. He is the publisher of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report. You can learn more at brookvillecapital.com. The website, again, is brookvillecapital.com. And Simon, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Appreciate you being on the program today and love to have you back down the road. That's great. Many thanks for your time. Really enjoyed it. I did as well, and we will return after these words. Stay with us. 
I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. And thanks again to Mr. Simon Popple, the publisher of the Brookville Capital Intelligence Report, for joining us on today's program. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I talked about how certain policies that are perhaps intended to help people end up hurting them. In particular, I talked about stimulus checks, which obviously are benevolent, perhaps well-intentioned, perhaps even necessary. But all these stimulus programs, the $1.9 trillion stimulus program most recently passed, have been funded through money creation. Massive money creation does create inflation, and the inflation remains long after the stimulus checks are mailed and cashed and spent. Now, inflation is really a tax on savers and investors, and it disproportionately affects those in lower income brackets. And I want to give you in this segment just a couple examples. Rents are increasing significantly. Now, it's no surprise to anybody who has looked to buy or sell real estate this year that real estate is a very hot market presently. I happen to believe that real estate is in a bubble as are stocks. I believe that we are in an everything bubble. But up until this year, rents have really not been adversely affected. But that is now changing. Last week, American Homes for Rent, which owns 54,000 houses, increased rents 11% in April. They reported last week that in April they increased rents 11%. Invitation Homes, which is the largest landlord in the industry, also boosted rents by a similar amount, according to one of their executives on a conference call that was reported on by Bloomberg. Now, if you take a look at why they're getting away with raising rents, certainly one of the reasons would be that we have now expanded and quite generous unemployment benefits that will now be paid through Labor Day. So this perhaps maybe has to change later this year when those expanded unemployment benefits expire. We'll have to wait and see. But not only rents are increasing, there are many other examples of inflation pressures. Food is also being affected by inflation. Michael Snyder, in his blog this past week, reported that the price of corn has risen, get this, 142% in the last 12 months. Now, corn is used in hundreds of different products that we buy at the grocery store, and so everyone will eventually feel the pain of this price increase. But it's not just corn prices that are going crazy. We're seeing food prices shoot up dramatically all across the industry, and there are many, many experts out there now warning that this is just the beginning. So if you think food prices are bad now, just wait, because they're likely going to get a whole lot worse. Now, if you look at the typical American household, 10% 
of their disposable income is spent on food. The USDA's website says this, In 2019, Americans spent an average of 9.5% of their disposable incomes on food. That was divided between food at home at 4.9% and food away from home at 4.6%. Now that's the average American, but when you start talking about averages, it can be very deceiving. Because obviously wealthy Americans spend a lot lower percentage of their household income on food than the average American. And at the opposite end of the spectrum, poorest Americans spend a lot more of their incomes on food on a percentage basis than the typical or average American. Now, going back to the USDA's website, according to that website, the poorest households spent an average of 36% of their disposable incomes on food in 2019. Now here we are in 2021, and food prices have risen significantly. Here's Mr. Snyder's take. He said the final numbers for 2020 will be quite a bit higher, and many believe that eventually the percentage of disposable personal income that the average, not the poorest, the average U.S. household spends on food will reach 40%. That would mean many poor households would end up spending more than 50% of their personal disposable incomes just on food. Now this brings me back full circle to where I started this segment. In order to provide relief payments as part of a stimulus package to Americans that may need help, Money has to be created. Money is created by the central bank, the Federal Reserve, which is a private group of bankers. And while these stimulus payments helped, in fact, during the month of March, personal incomes went up 21%. That's directly a result of stimulus payments. However, unless there's another stimulus package pending, which there may be, we now are going to see all this money creation actually impact the poorest households and savers and investors via inflation. Now, I have long advocated a two-bucket approach to managing assets, one bucket of stable assets that will survive the bubble bursting, the everything bubble bursting, and another bucket of assets to protect against inflation. Now, the May report, the five threats to your retirement and how to potentially avoid them, will give you details. If you've not yet requested the report, go ahead and go to requestyourreportnow.com, and I'd be glad to send you a copy. Uh, There is no cost to get that report. There is no obligation. It is simply a resource uh, that if you're even just looking for a second opinion, I would encourage you to get and read. Also, our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, contains some free resources. You can go to the website and look around at all those resources. And the Your RLA app is a free app. Uh, I would encourage you to spread the word uh, with the app. You can 
view my weekly headline roundup webinar. You can get the podcast version of this radio program, and you can also get the weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter. Uh, again, the app is free. You can get it by visiting the web store on your smartphone. Just search for Your RLA. It's the Your RLA app, and Your RLA is spelled all as one word when you search. That's Y O U R R L A. And again, that's Y O U R R L A. I'm running out of time for this week. I'm glad you decided to tune in. Please take advantage of our free resources and uh, have a terrific week.